Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. For those of you who don't know, Carl is the host of the 30 Love podcast as well, which has a lot of great episodes, including the last one with um, someone who attended the Labor Cup, so a lot of good Labor Cup content there, as well as on our podcast last week. So be sure to check his out as well if you need more to listen to. Uh, we're in the middle of a lot of tennis going on towards the end of the season. The WTA season is wrapping up with some big tournaments in Asia, and the ATP Asian swing is ramping up as well. And we've given women's tennis a bit of a short shrift in a couple of recent episodes, so I want to be sure to give that the focus it deserves this week. And right now... I think that means Arena Sabalenka and the amazing things she's accomplished just racing to the top of the game over the last two or three months, really, is all it is. Carl, we've been talking about Sabalenka in fits and starts for the last couple months, and, and we've both been watching a lot of Sabalenka because she's in basically all the important tennis matches right now. Can you tell me what what has what has made her so good? What What's responsible for her fast rise to the top right now? I can tell you what makes her so good right now. I didn't watch that much of her before her fast rise, probably because there weren't as many matches. As you say, now she's in so many big ones that she's hard to miss. And from what commentators say, she's really improved her shot selection and her movement. But all along, she's had incredible power. It's a really big first serve. She has a really solid second serve which is rare in the WTA, and she's strong from both wings and can hit winners on seemingly any ball, but seems to have pretty good selection about when she really goes for it on, on shorter, higher balls. Yeah, I think I think the shot selection is responsible for a lot of it. I, I did watch several matches of hers before these last few months, and like the power has always been there. I, I I don't remember exactly what the serve looked like a year, a year and a half ago, but I think that the serve has always been an asset. But like a lot of young players with power to spare, they they do end up too aggressive. And I think when they when they land on tour and start playing really high level opponents, they they take too many risks. And when you're someone with the power of someone like Sabalenka you don't need to take a lot of risks. I mean, you don't need to be hitting lines or corners. You just need to be crushing the ball like she does. And you can give yourself a lot of wiggle room. And you know that, that's what she's done. She's, unlike some, some of the players she's facing, she's, she's not necessarily aiming for lines. And she can still hit winners just, just by virtue of how hard she's hitting them. Um, whenever I'm looking at a young player like this, I'm always tempted to start making comparisons and if if Sabalenka does turn into someone who's sort of a perennial top five player let's say that the name that really comes to mind for me is Maria Sharapova and there's some ways in which Sabalenka is maybe could be better than Sharapova other ways in which we we, we just haven't seen yet but what do you think about that comparison Carl do you think that that's that's a valid one yeah they're definitely in the same family of player if I'm thinking about differences, I think Sabalenka's service motion, at least compared to the the later Sharapova service motion, looks more solid. And she she comes to net a fair amount. 
something that isn't obvious from from listening to commentary of matches but the stats show it from your charting of her matches about 20 already in the match charting project at tennis abstract and i'm, I'm looking at small differences because they really are so similar i mean they really are both powerful they move fairly well though not as well as their more defensive-minded rivals and neither one likes to do much besides hit a drive or topspin shot. I mean, Sabalenka's percentages of shots that are chips or slices are really low, and I think she had almost none in the Wuhan final the other day. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair assessment, and you're right, I think, to start with the, the serve, and that was really striking in her last couple matches in Wuhan, and in, in general, but in towards the end of that Barty match in the semifinals, she... She just ran away with it by hitting ace after ace after ace. I think there was a, a second serve ace or two in there. I mean, she, it, it, it started to feel like she could just hit aces at will. And there aren't very many women you can say that about. And while Sharapova has done some great serving, let's say, in her career, like, that's... The, and you don't want to call it a weakness, but it's it's something that's more erratic than it should have been. I mean, anytime I talked with a, a tennis coach about Sharapova, they'd always immediately start talking about how they wanted to fix the serve. And I don't think you're going to have the same conversations about Sabalenka. It's a lot more solid. Um, one thing. Did you talk striking, to Jimmy Connors about Sharapova's serve? <laughs> I haven't spoken to Jimmy Connors about Sharapova's serve, but did he have that same? Um, did he make the same comments about the serve? They only had a week together, so I think he wasn't able to even finish the word serve before it was done. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he I figured he was talking a lot both before and after that week, as he tends to do. Um, but another thing along those lines that's unusual in WTA is Sabalenka is very comfortable hitting smashes and hits them very well. And so many, so many women who fit that same sort of profile, who are very, very powerful, aggressive players... Sharapova among them, they let them drop and hit swinging volleys. And that can be a very effective shot. Maybe the end result isn't that different. But Sabalenka is one of the few who will take them out of the air and hit winners that way. I can't remember seeing her miss one. Eh, maybe one. But that, that that's an asset that not a lot of other people have. Um, yeah, it was a big... There's a big moment early in the match against Kantavite in the final in Wuhan where Kantavite missed a really important and easy open court smash and got broken and uh soon after Sabalenka had put away a smash that was tricky that might be what i'm thinking of yeah and i think the comparison between Sabalenka and Kontavite is interesting as well because Kontavite profiles is generally the same sort of player i mean big ground strokes aims for corners like wins matches that way but if you if you look at those serves next to each other Sabalenka is just at a different level I mean, this was a, a big week for Kontavite also, but the draw did kind of open up for her. So I don't think we can quite put Kontavite at the same level as Sabalenka right now, uh, even with the, the premier level final. And like you, you pointed out earlier, Carl, Sabalenka's second serve is really solid. Kontavite, you can't really say the same thing about. I mean, she gets her share of aces and the serve isn't, uh, isn't holding her back. But I mean, the second serve is neutral at best. And... Sabalenka is just on a totally different level from that. So 
looking ahead to the Australian Open, I I just updated all the tennis abstract ratings and all the stuff on the website this morning. This is Monday morning. We're talking on on October first with Wuhan finished, but Beijing already underway. And the, one of the first things I always look at when I update everything is, is the the women's Elo ratings. And after the Wuhan result, plus you know, all these other wins she's had lately, Sabalenka is up to number one on the women's tour in hard court specific ELO rating and number two overall. And I had, I had written this question in our notes even before I saw the ELO results, but I wondered, is Sabalenka our Australian Open favorite right now? And now that I've seen the, the current ELO ratings, I think that makes that question even more pressing. What do you think, Carl? Is, is, is she the, the, our best bet for an Australian Open champion next year? Wow. I mean, this really cuts to the heart of the debate of how different are women's Grand Slams from WTA events. It's easy to see a difference on the men's side because of best of five versus best of three. On the women's side, I guess there's more rest overall at a slam, but it's basically the same field in the same format. And that should make me discount my skepticism because Sabalenka hasn't gone deep in a slam draw. So... Yeah, maybe she's the favorite, or or maybe she's the co-favorite with a bunch of other women. Do you, do you want to? Let's talk about what we think about where she should sit in the field, and then I'll tell you what the actual odds say. What you mean? Oh, have you looked up betting odds? Yes, but I don't want the I want to want them to color your view on where Sabalenka should should be. Okay, favored. Well, if. I'm guessing what if if the if we were running them with the Elo ratings today, then I'm guessing she and Halep would be roughly co-favorites with I don't know 15% chances of winning something like that. Um, I'd have to guess that the betting odds are uh, maybe they're putting Wozniacki further up than she should be because she's the defending champion, probably giving Osaka a little bit too much credit for similar reasons. Uh, but you've got the odds in front of you. What what do they say about it? Sabalenka moved up for, with this tournament, as she should have, but she's still seventh. She's behind. Do you want to guess? You're right about Osaka and Wozniacki. Do you want to guess who the other four are ahead of Sabalenka? Not Halep? Halep's there. Oh, did you say Halep? Okay. Yeah, you said co-favorite. Uh, well, kind of, yeah. Yeah. So those, so those three and then three more? Yeah. Kvitova? No. Serena? Yep. Two more who aren't definitely not Svitolina, right? Right. They're both slam champs. Okay, so hmm. Oh, this is a tough one. Both Wimbledon Everybody. champs. They're both Wimbledon champs? Yeah. Mugarutsa? Yep. Really? How the others are weird. <laughs> Very weird. Who's the last one then? Kerber. Oh, okay, that makes sense. For some reason, I'm forgetting about Kerber these days. Okay, I guess yeah, Kerber. Yeah, it I shows Mugur- this field Mugur- that Muguruza is a shock. Clearly, the the act of winning a major title is being factored heavily in these odds, even though I'm not sure how much they should be in the WTA. Do you have a view on that? Well, right now there's we've got eight different winners in a row. So if there's ever a time to discount it, it seems like <laughs> it's now. <laughs> um, 
but I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think experience ha- is at least a little bit of a factor. I mean, that's the sort of thing that if I hear somebody else say that, uh, immediately my defenses and skepticism go up. Um, as a, as a stat head, I'm supposed to immediately argue against that perspective. But it does seem to be relevant in slams. I mean, the, there's always going to be exceptions like Sloan and Naomi Osaka. And, I mean, everyone has to be an exception sometime, overcoming the lack of experience. But I don't know. I... I an interesting test will be, I think, tomorrow Sabalenka plays Muguruza in Beijing. And maybe by the time you listen to this, uh, we'll know the result of that one. But, as yeah, I, I just don't see a lot of women beating her. And, I mean, experience, slam, history, whatever, all those things feel kind of relevant when you're talking about the, the big picture. But ultimately, it comes down to who's going to stop her? And I'm not, I'm not sure who that's going to be. I mean, Simona beat her in Cincinnati, so maybe a healthy Simona Halep stands in the way. Uh, maybe Wozniacki on a good day. If she gets back in form, she can, she can stop her. And, I mean, M- peak Muguruza definitely could. We've seen Muguruza play amazing tennis, but it's so rare to see that these days. I, I, I wonder who's actually putting their money on Muguruza as, the, the, as, as a potential Australian Open winner. Um, that's it's a tricky one. I mean, the, the way I phrase the question in our notes is it, it, you can't really call someone a favorite in a, a women's slam these days, but is there anyone you should favor more than Sabalenka? And like I said, maybe Halep, maybe, um, maybe Naomi Osaka. I'm not sure, but yeah, Muguruza seems like a pretty wild stretch. So Sabalenka, one other factor she'll face relative to at least some of the names on that list is she'll likely be seated lower than them. So maybe this doesn't matter as much if the WTA field is as flat as we sometimes have evidence to see it as. But right now she's 12th in the race, and Halep and Kerber and Osaka are 1, 2, and 3. So they would theoretically have an, an easier time getting to the later stages of the Australian Open. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, one one thing I've been meaning to generate as a report on Tennis Abstract is is just a, every week a new simulation of the probable draw for the next slam. Uh, just take the current top one, 128 and seed the top 32 in their current rank order. And if you played a slam on whatever the surface of the next slam is, figure out what the odds would be using today's ELO ratings. I'd love to have that number right now because you're right. That would that would lessen Sabalenka's odds a little bit because yeah, she could. I mean, if if she doesn't do well in Beijing, maybe she falls to 13 or 14. She could face Halep in the fourth round. She could get somebody. She could get other really great solid players all the way to the final, and that would be a big ask for anybody. Um, so that would lower her odds. But also, like you say, there's so much parity, and who knows whether all those women are even going to make it that far. So like the draw could open up for her as well as anybody else. One other Sabalenka stat question for you. Do you know how many main draw slam wins she has? Mm, can't be very many. I mean, I, I can only think of the, the, the three at the U.S. Open, and I was not paying attention during Wimbledon this year. How many is it? It was mostly just those three. It's four total. She had one, <laughs> one at Wimbledon last year. And okay. her, her U.S. Open run is, is 
the latest example I'm seeing of one of my favorite phenomena of the sport and probably one of the players' least favorite phenomena, just how giant a difference in players' careers a few points in one match can make. Because she played Naomi Osaka pretty tough in the fourth round and lost the third set 6-4. And, of course, Osaka went on to win the title. And if Sabalenka had won that match, she would have been... She would have had a pretty good shot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, certainly looking at their games, there's not much Osaka can do that Sabalenka can't do. Uh, I, I saw a comparison on on Twitter that just this morning that I've heard a couple times since the U.S. Open. I think uh, people are starting to see Osaka as at least having a similar game style to Serena Williams. I don't think anybody's appointing her the future Serena because that's a pretty enormous ask of anyone but i mean you can you can see the similarities really big big serve and some of the other um, positive attributes that they both have but since we were talking about sabalenka as the next sharapova do you think there's any validity to that as osaka being the next serena williams i guess it's possible i mean it's so easy probably to anoint a lot of players as the next Serena Williams because Serena Williams career has had so many stages and she's had so many different phases of game. I mean, it, not that she's changed completely during her career, but uh, I, I guess the question for me would be more, which Serena Williams does Osaka resemble the most? Like what age does she look like Serena at that age or Serena right now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, uh... I'd have to brush up on my Serena Williams phases, have a good answer for that. Um, and another factor is just, like you're right to say a lot of players can fit some mold or other that would give you a reason to say that, um, partly because Serena has been so influential. I mean, even just talking about the swinging volley. like that's Serena didn't exactly invent a swinging volley, but if you look at the, the, the number of swinging volleys that were being hit in, I don't know, 1995, versus the number of swinging volleys that were being hit in 2005 or 2015. Like that, there's a huge difference. And I think Serena being so effective with that shot is a, a, a large part of the reason why. Do you think she's also helped increase its popularity in the ATP? I don't know. Uh, I think that that's a lot more recent, don't you think? The men hitting swinging volleys? Yeah, that does feel more recent. I'm not sure. I, I, I'd be interested to look at the numbers and see just how much it is increasing. Cause, uh, yeah, you do see it a lot more now. Uh, it, it it might be a different sort of trend. And this isn't just... I'm not necessarily saying it isn't due to Serena. But on the women's tour, it's a lot of it is trading in smashes for swinging volleys. And... On the men's tour, I think a lot of it is is being a little bit more aggressive on other shots. So um, you'll see some some shots that 20 years ago people would have hit as traditional drive volleys, and, or not drive volleys, to traditional volleys. And now they're hitting as swinging volleys um, or even just stepping forward a little bit from the baseline and hitting a swinging volley in the second shot. So it isn't really a serve and volley, but it's sort of a serve and you know, hope for an opportunity and that opportunity will give you a swinging volley from no man's land or the back half of the service box. So it's, it's not the same trend, but there are definitely more of them. 
and probably somewhat similar technique, although I guess it's a different shot when you're hitting it lower, deeper in the court than when you're hitting it at smash position. Yeah, and that's another stat I'd be interested to see is is how effective they are. I, I can't remember any examples right now, but I watched a series of matches last week where it seemed like no one could make a swinging volley, and it seemed like like normally it isn't a, a high-risk shot. It shouldn't be a high-risk shot, given a lot of the opportunities people hit them in. But but yeah, they, they can come and go in patches. And if you are hitting them from no man's land, I mean, almost anything's a risky shot from that part of the court. So um, it, w- it would be interesting to see if, if there are men in general or if there are certain players that are, are hitting them in, in higher risk situations and, and maybe not getting great results out of the shot. But yeah, I'd want to see some, some stats on that before drawing any conclusions. Um, so I think that pretty much touches on everything we wanted to, to cover with Sabalenka. Um, Beijing, as I mentioned, is already underway and we've, as has become the theme throughout the whole season, really on the, on the women's side, there are big losses already. Svitolina and Petra Kvitova both lost on Saturday and Halep seems to have a, a back injury that's not going away. So she retired after a set. Uh, on Sunday, still a lot of great players in the draw, like Sabalenka, of course, who got a first-round bye, and Muguruza, who she'll play, and most of the other other stars are still in there. Caroline Garcia is still looking to defend her title from last year. Uh, Sabalenka getting a bye reminds me of something we talked about a little while ago about this idea of players who go to finals one week getting help the next week to make it easier for them to play back-to-back. I know that's not why she got it, but it worked out pretty well. No, it well. is. Oh, she, it, it is, because the WTA is yeah. doing this, yeah. Because her, yeah, se- her seed wouldn't be good enough, right? Yeah, her. I think she's ranked 16th or something like that. So, so yeah, I think it's Wuhan gives... They're called performance buys, and the four Wuhan semifinalists get the buys into Beijing. Uh, and it... it it got screwed up a little bit because Ashley Barty got hurt in her semifinal in Wuhan, so she pulled out of Beijing. So I think that that opened up not only Barty's spot, but it also opened up a buy spot for a lucky loser. So I think there only ended up being three buys. Um, I'd have to double check that, but I think that's what ended up happening. Um, so it's it's a little weird, and it does make for odd-looking draws because the buys don't sit in their normal position in the bracket. Uh, and it's, I'd be curious exactly the mechanics of how they build those draws. I, I tried to write a simulator for that. And I think I got something that works out, but, um, but you kind of have to, you, you have to place the players who are getting performance buys first. So you don't end up like accidentally drawing them against each other or something If they, if they draw against each other. They can't both get buys for instance. Um, but it's it's an or, unorthodox thing. But as you point out, it's it's a solution to a very real problem. Um, I think when we talked about it a few episodes ago, it seemed like something that more tournaments should be adopting. And the WTA uh, has such a crunch crowded schedule this time of year that it it really makes sense. And we want players to be in position to play Singapore. 
Yeah, and the super weird thing about the WTA schedule right now is we've still got the premiere in Moscow happening. And I feel like there needs to be some some quirk I'm not aware of in the space-time continuum that allows there to be a premiere in Moscow all before Singapore. But the the oddity about that is Halep right now is scheduled to play Moscow. I don't know if she's really going to, if she's barely healthy enough to go play a set in Beijing. But someone pointed out that that might entirely be for the money because WTA players get pretty lucrative bonuses if they show up for all the premier events or a certain number of premier events or something like that. So I think it was a six-figure sum or something like that that Simona qualifies for if she does show up for all the premieres. Uh, So doing a lot of weird travel um, just to get the money that Labor Cup could have given her. (laughs) King Cup, as you coined it. Yeah, the King Cup. I, I, I'm not claiming that. I think that a lot of That's people floating around. Ideas. Um, yeah, I like the Althea Cup, too. I think that name sounds more like, like a Greek goddess, also. Mm-hmm. Um, so to honor Althea Gibson would be, it would be convenient, and it would just, it has the right connotations. But, I mean, it would be great to have Billie Jean involved as well. So could go either way there. Um, yeah, so... One thing from WTA tournaments, I hope that you saw some of this in your tennis watching this last week, Carl. It seems like many, most, all, I'm not sure, a lot of the Asian tournaments have switched over to from Hawkeye to the Fox 10 replay system. And it's it's very different. I think they use more cameras and a faster camera speed, which, I mean, Hawkeye's already using some pretty high-tech stuff and I think six cameras in every court. And I think... I think I heard a commentator say that Fox 10 uses 50. I don't, I'm not sure if I believe that, but a lot of cameras. And they claim to be showing real replays. They call it the moment of truth and real bounce. Um, so it, it's, it's at least they want you to think it's, it's more accurate or reliable than Hawkeye. What do you think, Carl? Is this, is it an improvement? From a statistics perspective, it's an enormous improvement because Hawkeye just asks you to believe the ball mark and, in fact, to see it as the culmination of a replay video of the point. So it's it's doing a lot of um, hiding behind its back what's going on, whereas Fox 10 is saying, hey, we're going to show you that simulation of the, our best guess as to where the bounce was but we're also going to show you the video and you can see sort of the raw data that we're using to generate this verdict as to whether the ball was in or out. All that said, I think from an aesthetic and TV point of view, I enjoy the Hawkeye experience more. And I, I, it's, it's interesting to see the two companies and two events go in these very different directions because with the slate of hand of we're showing you this video replay of the point and then you see the ball land and then you see this mark. It, it, it all feels very uh, seamless and fitting with what you just saw with your own eyes. Whereas the Fox 10 one feels very, I th- I find it a little confusing. Like which line is this from which perspective, which, which part of the screen should I be looking at the simulation or the, or the video? Um, but because I am just, you know, a, 
I believe in the importance of statistical education so core to me. I'm going to go with Fox 10 on this one. That's my moment of truth for you. Yeah, I, I, I see a lot of the benefits you're talking about with Fox 10. The main drawback I see right now is that it seems to be a lot slower. I've seen in a number of cases where players are just standing around waiting maybe an extra 20, 30 seconds for the replay. And that happens occasionally with Hawkeye, and it's a little annoying every time. But it seems to be a bigger problem with Fox 10. And maybe that's something that'll work out. I mean, as computers and all their systems get faster, then maybe it won't be an issue. But especially when you have players challenging a first serve and disrupting that part of the game that theoretically shouldn't have any kind of pauses in it, it it is a problem. Um, So that's my one hesitation. What I do like is it it seems like Fox 10 provides more kind of standard graphics to broadcasts where every changeover they've got a new, like, I don't know, shot distribution or, um, I don't know, they're the same cool graphics that you can make with Hawkeye data, but it seems like Fox 10 makes it easier for broadcasters to incorporate those. And... It's like they're I mean, busy and, making those when they should be <laughs> showing the replay. Yeah. yeah, that could that could be it. I, I hope they've got automated tools to just provide those whenever the broadcaster wants them. Um, it, it seems like that's something they should be able to do. But whatever the reason, I, the more they'll show us, the better. And in, as, as we've discussed both on the podcast and off for years, there's so much data that Hawkeye and now Fox 10 are, are collecting that is not available to fans or researchers or just about anybody. And I I won't be happy until I have the raw data in my hands, but I'll be a little happier if broadcasters will show us more. So that that's a great step. I'm really happy about that. Do you think it's good for tennis that there's competition and there, there are multiple standards for line electronic line calling? I think as long as they stay within a certain bounds where the players understand that the the screen says in or out and that's the verdict that keeps it within a certain judicial framework and if you want to have different visual languages for how to convey that to the players and the fans i think that's okay and competition here is great i mean you want lots of different technical people scientific people data people working on the problem and I think we do better when they're working on it in separate camps and like pushing each other to uh, compete for tournament rights and contracts. That's probably a good thing. Maybe one of them will see that it could be a competitive advantage to put the raw data in Jeff Sackman's hands. Yeah, let's, let's all hope so from your mouth to Hawkeye CEO's ears. Um, Jeff, I want to ask about something you said with the scenario of a player challenging a first serve and then the the pause that you get in between. And it was in one of the Wuhan matches I was watching that the player challenged her own first serve being called out. She was wrong or she, she disagreed with the Fox 10 system. And on her second serve, she missed and it was a double fault. And the commentator said, oh, that was completely predictable. Of course, the commentator hadn't predicted it. <laughs> Have do, do your charting stats include incorrect challenges? You'd be able to see if the double fault rate is higher in that scenario? Yeah, and I did. There's okay. an article from a year or two ago, and 
might have even been your suggestion then. And <laughs> Clearly, I remember so the, the response. Yeah, I mean, to give a little background there, like in the in the match charting documents that volunteers are filling out, it, there there's no standard way to record challenges, so that there's not like a box you click if there or check if there's a, a challenge, but there is a, a notes column and what volunteers are instructed to do is to at least make a mention of the challenge. And unfortunately that uh, maybe I didn't think through that as well as I should have in the beginning. Um, but at least for me and the couple thousand matches I've, I've done over the last few years, um, I've been consistent about how I record them. So I wasn't able to look at, at every single challenge we have a record of, but I was able to look at, I don't know, several hundred, maybe even a couple thousand first serve challenges. And there was basically no effect. Uh, on the the result of the second serve, I I think I looked at both how often they go in and uh, whether players were were less likely to win those second serve points, just in case they were they they knew it was less likely to go in and they were taking something off their second serve just to be careful. I didn't I don't think I found any effect at all for for either of those two things, uh, but that is all Hawkeye. So. So maybe if Fox 10 is slower, maybe maybe that's an issue. Uh, I mean, do you think that's a potential area of concern, Carl, that, that, that the, the rules should be tweaked, especially, especially when, I don't know, a, a, re, a receiver can, can challenge a close serve and, and potentially delay a player that way? Like, should we potentially bar challenges on first serves? I don't know what the solution would be. I mean, it, 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 that is one, or just to change the cost benefit a little bit. Um, I don't know. Or if, if, if there is a, a challenge after the first serve, then I, I, I don't know what the solution is. If, if you're going to honor the result of the challenge. Um, I mean, normally if there's a long delay between the first and second serve, then you start talking about whether the server should get another first serve. But if the delay is a challenge that just establishes that, the player's first serve missed, it would be kind of strange for that to be the reason to give them a new first serve. Yeah, I mean, it's it's odd because the player is kind of punished for having hit a first serve that is almost in, but out. Whereas if the first serve was clearly out, then you have no pause. And it's also the shot that is generally hit the hardest. So it's probably the hardest to call. So you'd expect a lot of challenges on that shot. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the the clear answer is is to go with what someone suggested to me recently that they sh- there should just be one serve. Ah, uh, I don't like that. <laughs> it would solve this problem, though. It would. That that's true. Um, and, and another thing to keep in mind is to going against what I was hinting at a minute ago is that players are I mean, aware of this. I mean, they, they know what the conventional wisdom says. Obviously they know what they think and their coach thinks about the, the risk of challenging a first serve. And they also know that on average players are not good at challenging. I mean, I guess good is a value judgment that's a little bit out of place here, but players are not successful very often. I mean, I don't know what the exact rates are offhand, but I think they're like one in five successful challenges at best so if you hit a first serve that you think is in but you're not really sure then i mean 
you don't have a very good chance of getting another first serve. So when you do challenge it, you're you're accepting a very small chance of an ace or another first serve in exchange for a very high chance of having a long wait, getting out of your routine, and then having to hit a second serve. And I mean, that's a gamble that players are consistently willing to take. So maybe that's our answer right there. It's it, it's good enough for them, so we should just accept that that's how it works. Yeah, like with another recent tennis talking point that won't be named on the show, you kind of don't know the denominator. Like I, I can think of lots of cases where a player misses the first serve and then looks up quickly at the chair the chair nods like yep it was definitely out and then the player plays again and it could be some of those would be challenges if the player knew they'd get an instantaneous answer like with the next gen finals in milan yeah um yeah it would be interesting to again to look at hawkeye data on this one there was a a project that stephanie kowalczyk and i worked on together a couple years ago i guess now where, where she did have some hawkeye data from the Australian Open, and one of the things she looked at was frequency of challenge based on proximity to the lines, for instance. So, so you could do that with with that data, and and maybe players are more willing to challenge something that's a, on average a little further from the line if it's a point-ending ground stroke compared to a first serve, um, and that wouldn't exactly give you the denominator of number of times that a player was thinking about challenging but i'm I'm guessing that'd be a a good proxy for denominator and it would it would tell you something that something meaningful about whether players are shying away from making those challenges because they don't want to run the risk of a long delay and then having to hit a second serve yep so good I'm, i'm glad we got to talk about fox 10 here i'm i'm looking forward to some enterprising tennis journalists uh digging deeper into this subject so if there are any enterprising tennis journalists out there listening among our between seven and seven thousand listeners uh, i hope you do look into it and, and talk to hawkeye talk to fox 10 talk to the the tournament directors who are are faced with making the decision between the two rival technologies and just i'd love to know more about what's going on behind the scenes with with this and and where we can expect it to go um yeah like carl said the the competition potentially has a lot of value um just in terms of making the ultimate products better i mean presumably hawkeye has been improving their product for continually for many years now but we don't really know that and we don't see any of that in the end result um so so yeah it, it will be interesting to see what happens now with a viable competitor that's getting some market share there do you think that the change I mentioned is an improvement? Because that's one we do see, the the change where you see the replay of the point f- flow into the the ball mark. I don't know. I see what I, I see the positives of it. Um I guess I'd kind of made my peace with the imprecision of Hawkeye, so even though I know there's a margin of error that makes really, really close calls essentially a coin flip, uh I, I'm fine with not seeing it, and I don't like the delay. So, if it were just me, then I would skip the the replay. But I, I would guess that for the vast majority of fans, the replay is an improvement. But I don't know; it's not clear cut to me anyway. Okay. 
Um, but maybe they'll maybe they'll speed it up. I don't know. There's lots of room for improvement that I'm sure they're aware of as well. So we haven't talked at all about this week's ATP results, and there were two 250s on the men's side this week. Most of the top players were sitting this one out, partly because it was pretty soon after Labor Cup. Only one guy, David Goffin, played both Labor Cup and a tournament last week, and Goffin lost in his first match against Andy Murray. And apparently Goffin has some uh, injury problem. I don't remember what the details were, but could be a factor as well. Um, Kevin Anderson had entered Chengdu, I think, but he pulled out before the draw was made um, because of some probably made-up injury. So what that meant was the draws were both pretty wide open. And as it turned out, in both Chengdu and Shenzhen, the tournaments were won by qualifiers. And the bigger story of the week was one of those qualifiers, Bernard Tomic. Um, came through qualifying, won five matches, played Fanini in the final in Chengdu, uh, went to a third set tiebreak. I think it even went to 7-7 in the third set tiebreak. So just barely won it, but Tomic is back in the winner's circle. And what do you think, Carl? Is this a return to fame and fortune and winning big matches for Bernie Tomic? Yeah, probably not. But... (laughs) (laughs) But... Uh, impressed with the guy he's been playing qualifying a bunch and this wasn't the toughest field but it it was still a a pretty nice title it'll boost his rank a lot considering how he's kind of bragged about his fortune in the past playing qualifying of a 250 seems beneath him and, and maybe like something he would just skip until he got a wild card and, and maybe that would be the end of his career. So I'm I'm glad to see him choose to to play. I mean I'm glad for him if it's what he wants, but I'm glad for tennis too. I think he has a pretty unusual game that tennis benefits from incorporating. So I, I like having him in the main draws of tournaments and playing well. And he seems to be serving really well. Although it's a pretty serve friendly tournament. So he's He's, he's, in my book, a a welcome return to the tour. Yeah, definitely. And and I didn't realize before I was just prepping for this this episode, like you said, he's been playing a lot of matches, winning a lot of matches this year, even if he hasn't been building his ranking back up too fast. Like, unfortunately, the story for that a lot of fans have heard about, about Thomas this year is his uh, first round qualifying match against Kokonakis in in New York. And he won the first set, lost the second, and I think he lost the last nine games in a row or something. So it was pretty obviously a tank job. He didn't want to be there anymore, and he he didn't think he could come back. And that fits the Bernard Tomic narrative. So that's the story everyone's taking away from his 2018 season, at least before this week. But if you look back, he's like you say, he's been playing qualifying. I think he qualified for the French Open. He uh, won the first rounds of qualifying at Wimbledon and then got in as a lucky loser. So he he's competing in the way that a player would if you know he's a typical guy of his rating a ranking who really cares and is fighting to get back on top. And I think you have to look at that more than you have to look at one match in, in U.S. Open qualifying. So that that's really encouraging. And I'm curious, I, I don't think Thomas is ever going to become a, a mental giant of the men's game, and he's probably never going to be able to entirely shake 
some of the issues he's had to deal with with his his family and um and kids some of his father's relationships people on his team so he, he can't overcome that and he can't he, he he can only he can only do so much but if we took all that stuff out of the picture i mean all the the mental fact, factors and other intangibles and graded players just on on their talent their their skills on court where would where do you think thomas would rank on the atp it's around 30 just inside the slam seeds that's all really yeah i i think he still has a lot of technical weaknesses that players expose it's not it's not just i think he gets a slightly bad rap for his mental game that <laughs> and maybe not as much of a bad rap as he should for for some of his abilities like he's not a great mover uh i think the the backhand can be exposed and second serve yeah i, I don't know where, where would you put him well I, I like many of the questions that i i pose in our notes i don't always think through the answer so well i didn't actually think about it but i guess i i would have said something more like 20 or maybe maybe 15 to 20 um but you make a good point and it, it makes me wonder if there's if some game styles like that make it harder to be mentally strong or appear mentally strong because if you if there are big gaps in your game then a, a savvy player or a player with the right sort of matching skill set could expose them and some players could be really relentless about it and that must be really frustrating if if you've got some things on your resume that say you know you're a you're a slam quarter finalist or whatever and you've reached such and such a ranking and all of a sudden you show up and are playing in the second round of a challenger and this guy has your number i mean he's not supposed to you're supposed to be better than that what are you going to do about that i mean besides going home and practicing really hard for six months so those two things could be linked i don't know i mean Certainly, there's there's more to these intangibles than than we can really quantify, or else they wouldn't be intangibles. Uh, but I hope we find out. I mean, I, I think you're right that he's, any kind of style variety is good for the game. So it's great to see him him back in the mix. Maybe he will get into the the main draw of the Australian Open this time around. I'm sure Australian fans would like to see that. Uh, so yeah, I mean. It, a little bit of a disappointing loss for Fanini, though. You have to think. I mean, this is the this is the sort of match, a sort of tournament that Fabio Fanini should be winning, don't you think? I don't usually think of any match as one that Fabio Fanini should be winning, just because he he is so he seems so volatile. I guess we could check the results. Maybe maybe he's more predictable than i would think i know you've done this study for the atp before like which players have the most predictable outcomes um but yeah fonini does tend to to thrive at smaller events and and build up his ranking there you noted that in the show notes and uh i i'm sure when he saw who he was playing in the final he would he was feeling pretty good about his chances yeah, I, I I need to go back and review that study or just redo it entirely because I I remember being a little underwhelmed with my results. Like I went into that thinking that I was going to find that Fanini was super inconsistent and I don't know the David Ferrers of the world were going to be super consistent and it was all going to match conventional wisdom and tell us some interesting things about players and it it was underwhelming in that 
I don't think very many players did show up as as that inconsistent, but it's a, it's a tough thing to measure. And so much of so much of the conventional wisdom comes from perceived motivation. Like we don't when we're talking about consistency, we usually don't focus too much on 250s and 500s. We're remembering just a handful of matches that we know Fanini can go to the US Open and beat Nadal, but we've also seen him you know lose matches in times and places against opponents that he should never lose to based on you know, the fact that he can go beaten at all or the fact that he's a, a top 20 level player. So it, it, I think it's, it's a tough question just to pose in the first place, at least analytically, to get a sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about consistency. Um, Dominic Team is another guy who's, who I think you can put in the conversation because he's had so many kind of disappointing losses at 250s and 500s, partly because he plays them all, so he's bound to lose some. But um, but it's tough to know how much weight to give like a first-round loss at the Antalya uh, grass court event. Like, it's a 250, it's the week before Wimbledon, does it really matter? Was he really trying? You never, you don't really know. And I, I mean, there's, there's more issues going on with Fanini than just week-to-week incentive changes. But... Some of the same issues arise, I think, when trying to evaluate that. Yeah, and we we haven't even really touched on, even though it's come up in a few ways during this episode, the the effect of injury. And we hear all the time about players all carrying some degree of injury, and some of them several. And it's it's just when they're least injured that they're able to pl- play at their best. Uh, do you buy that? Do you think that's maybe accounting for some players seeming to be up and down? Maybe maybe helps account for what I was talking about last week about WTA players being pretty up and down this year. Yeah, I think that's huge. And and just being a Simona Halep fan right now, you have to assume that's the case because uh, she's had. I mean, she retired in her match yesterday, but uh, last week she had a. a what will on paper go down as a, a, a rough, unexpected loss. But we know from what she said even before the match that her back seized up. So if you have that backstory, no pun intended, then you know it, 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 it's the injury talking. It's not that Simona's skills just vanished or she's mentally really weak or something. Um, that's all you need to know. I think that the danger is that you can you can overcorrect for that, that... So many players don't talk about injuries until they lose, and then all of a sudden they have a nagging shoulder thing or a knee thing. And I, I don't know. I, partly I'm just skeptical because it would be so difficult, maybe impossible to quantify. So I, I don't like messing around with stuff like that. But I think the people who are really following players, especially if, I mean, like for me and Simona, like I can't, I, 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 I follow like what she says in the media and what the media says about her more than I do almost any other player. So I, uh, I can adjust the results for that kind of thing. Um, but I can't do that for virtually everyone else on, on both tours. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a factor. And I guess all you can do analytically is just assume it's the same level of factor for every player, which probably isn't true. Yeah, I'm sure it's not true, and I, I too have no idea how to quantify it except to try to back it out of results. Like, oh, she underperformed by 23 percent to first uh, approximation. That's how injured she is. Yeah, 
Yeah, I guess the, this is yet another place, since I haven't said this for at least 12 minutes, that we'd love to have some Hawkeye data because, at least for some injuries, then if, if you had really granular data, you could look at, at at certain specific stats. Like if someone's serve is 10 miles an hour slower than usual, then if you know something about a, a, a pre-existing shoulder problem, then bam, you have proof. And we know that you know, dropping 10 miles an hour off your serve is going to have a pretty negative effect. So if you can say, you know, there's a shoulder thing, serving slower, losing more points, okay, there's, there's your result. It isn't mental weakness or inconsistency. It's just the shoulder problem. And maybe for Simona, if you could measure, I don't know, how fast she was getting across the court, then maybe that could be it too. Maybe, maybe that would allow you to pinpoint at least the results of common injuries or the, the, the usual results of common injuries. Uh, but, you know, it's all somewhat moot because we don't have that data and we have no immediate hope of getting our hands on it. So all we can do is speculate what we, about what we do with it. Um, but at least that's one, one direction you could go. Um, since I, I, I see the clock ticking away a little bit, one last topic I wanted to touch on was was a good segue for talking about slow serves. And that's the other ATP winner this week, Yoshihito Nishioka. Um, actually a really good segue because he serves really slow and he was in, just injured for a year and a half. Um, he's a not very tall lefty. Um, obviously Japanese. He had a lot of, has a lot of promise, had more promise before he missed more than a year with a, I think it was a hip injury, but wouldn't wouldn't bet too much on that. Um, and he also qualified, like Thomas this week, ran all the way to the final in Shenzhen and then beat Pierre-Hugues Herbert in the final. Also a, a solid result from Herbert. Uh, Carl, do you have any thoughts on on Nishioka? Like, obviously some pretty big limitations on his game with the size and nothing like a big serve. Uh, what kind of potential do you think a player like that has? I think he has the potential to give us a lot of entertaining matches, which he did in 2017 in Dean Wells before his his injury uh, absence. Uh, but probably not the potential to be, like if we were talking about Tomic and you said 15 or 20 in the rankings and I said 30, it seems likely that Nishioka would, would be behind that because he, he lacks so many of the, the natural gifts that, um, that someone much taller than him has. And I, I mean, it's Diego Schwartzman really is just the, uh, the exception that proves the rule in terms of like, yeah, I guess some guys can overcome their, their being quite a bit shorter than average on tour, but it's such a liability because the serve is the most important shot by far. Yeah, absolutely. And it might be a bigger liability for Nishioka than it is for Schwartzman because Schwartzman grew up playing on clay, so he's super comfortable on the surface that should favor his game the most. And Nishioka, I, I don't know this for sure, but I can only assume he mostly grew up and trained on hard courts. So if, if that's where he needs to succeed the most, then he's, he's sort of trying to fight his way out of the dragon's lair. Like he, he He's going to have the odds against him on fast courts every time he goes out there. Uh, watching, I think it was a semifinal I watched. I, I haven't watched the final yet, but 
maybe it was his quarterfinal that I watched. I don't remember. But he he reminded me a lot of Donald Young. And I don't mean that as a negative. Donald Young has become a bit of a, a punchline for some people. But Donald Young at his best is a really entertaining player. I mean, I think the, the way you're talking, Carl, he's, Donald Young has given us tons of entertaining matches. He's a, he has the potential to be a great shot maker. Uh, he does a lot with some of the, the, the limitations that he has. But Donald Young peaked not far inside the top 50 and had a hard time staying there. So, I mean, do you think that's a valid comparison to make between Nishioka and Donald Young? Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty apt one. I think Young is a bit more aggressive, a bit more inclined to take the initiative in points and try to come to net and close out points. But in terms of what they are able to do given their height and you know the potential weakness on serve, I think there are a lot of similarities. And and they're yeah. both very fast. Yeah, I mean you have to be. I think even even though Nishioka has a long way to go to reach his potential, like I don't think we'd even be talking about him if if he had I mean, given this the skills the limitations we're talking about, if he didn't have at least one really really elite skill, um he, he wouldn't have gotten this far and, and in his case that's the speed. Um one interesting thing, just just starting to wrap things up here, um Nishioka ended up facing three lefties in Shenzhen. Nishioka is a lefty himself. So in, in the second round, he played uh, Denis Shapovalov. Quarterfinals, he played Cam Nori, who's now the number two Brit in the, the tour rankings. And in the semifinals, he beat Fernando, Fernando Verdasco. Um, so for those of us who are interested in, in the rare lefty-lefty matchups, that's something to look at and... and I was hoping we'd get to that this week, but I think that's a, a bigger topic than we have time for. So we'll save that for the next time. There's a, an unusual number of lefty-lefty matchups, um, but just including it now is a bit of trivia. So we're headed into some even bigger tournaments. This week, the women, as we've already said, are playing in Beijing, the premier mandatory, uh, which will give us pretty close to the, the final entry list for Singapore. And the men, a lot of the top guys are back in action. I think Del Potro and Zverev are, are both playing in, ah, my mind's going blank, either Tokyo or Beijing. But lots of top guys in action leading up to the Shanghai Masters coming up. So I think we'll leave it there for this week. Um, we have a special episode planned for next Saturday with, um, with, with unexpected guests and in-person recording. So... Everybody be sure to check back for that. Carl, I know you're as excited as I am for next week's pod recording. Um, thank you, Carl, as always, for joining me. Can't wait. It's going to be the biggest thing happening next Saturday anywhere. By far the biggest thing happening next Saturday. Uh, we may or may not fill you in on what makes that an inside joke next week. So even more to look forward to. Um you need, like I said before, if you need more to listen to, check out Carl's 30 Love Podcast. Um, you can find all of our episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you again next week.